0: Next message, we have the privilege of hearing from Mr. Curtis Whiteley, and his message is entitled, Desiring Righteousness. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day, the first Sabbath day of 2023. 2023. Hard to say it, right? So you say in 2022, and if you've been writing on paper, like dates or anything like that, like a checkbook, or what's the date if you had to sign something, and you did the old two, three, like I did, okay? I think everyone realizes that's probably going to be the case until probably March. So here we are on the first Sabbath of 2023, and you know, with a new year, if you're like a lot of people, Uh, maybe you made some goals. Maybe you made some what people like to refer to as New Year's resolutions. And so uh, I was thinking about this and this message today and I went to a website called Statistica.com and I want to say a little while back I actually was giving another message and I think I used this website and looked at maybe some New Year's resolutions. But I looked at this website just to see what what's the most common New Year's resolutions? And so I found uh, on this website the eight most common New Year's resolutions. uh, 52% of people said their New Year's resolution was to exercise. 50% to eat healthier, 40% to lose weight. So those first three, shocker, right? And maybe some of us have some of those goals in mind with this new year. 39% the fourth one was to save money. The fifth one was 37% to spend more time with family and friends. The sixth one was 20% to spend less time on social media. And I do remember that one a while back when I was giving a message and I was looking at some of these things. The seventh one was 19% reported to reduce stress on the job. And the eighth one was 19% 19% as well, so it's a tie between 7 and 8, to reduce spending on living expenses. And if you have happened to figure out that last one, please come and see me. Now, I think we would all agree, these New Year's resolutions, they're common, okay? I mean, we've probably done them ourselves with different things. Maybe it's not as general as this. Maybe it's more personal, something specific that we're dealing with. Uh, and none of these that I see here, I would say, are bad resolutions. They're bad goals. But there is one that I want to encourage all of us to consider today in this new year, and one that we should always consider, but it's just a little reminder today. And it's pretty much the title of my message to have a more fervent and intentional desire for righteousness a more fervent and intentional desire for righteousness. The text that I want to look at today is in Matthew, the fifth chapter, just one verse, chapter six, or verse six. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. For they shall be filled. And I have three questions that I'd like for us to answer today. We can't answer it in full because some of these questions, some of these things, I think every week that we come to Sabbath services, every sermon we listen to, every time we open up the Bible, we're trying to answer this question. One of them is, what type of righteousness is Jesus talking about? Secondly, what do people, unfortunately, replace this with? There's a lot of people, I think, that we would agree, and maybe our own selves at one point in in time, thought that we were seeking righteousness when we really weren't. So what do people, unfortunately, replace this with, this hunger and thirst, and how do they satisfy their desires? And my third one, what does this desire look like? In other words, how might we apply the the desire for righteousness in our lives? What does that look like? It's not a question, I think, that I could even come close to answering. But one I want us to consider. So let's just simply go to Matthew, the fifth chapter, real quick. He might already have that up there, and just read that passage one more time. In verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is, of course, at the beginning of Jesus' famous, famously known section of scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we traditionally have ascribed these verses, these seven verses, verses 3 through 10, seven or eight verses, as the Beatitudes. Jesus gives a characteristics, and he calls the person who exhibits these attitudes or these characteristics as blessed. And this is the Greek word, makarios, and it conveys the idea of happy, favored, or privileged. Happy and favored and privileged are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, But as I was reading, and I've traditionally used that word, you know, you read some commentaries, you read uh, a lexicon or a concordance, and you look at the word, what does the word blessed mean? And there's different definitions, but I have been one that has oftentimes just used the generic term, you know, blessed, it means to be happy, to be fortunate. But I don't think that it completely gives justice to what this word means. I like this quote from a guy by the name of Alan Ross who wrote an article in the Beatitudes talking about this word blessed. And I think it's important just to kind of bring out this word because that's exactly what Jesus says. He's talking about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and how they'll be filled, but he uses that word blessed. So let's get to the best, closest possible way to what Jesus means. I like what Ross says. He says, there is a desire today... To translate the word happy, uh, to translate this the word happy, but that does not seem to capture all that is intended here in the text. Primarily because modern usage of the word happy has devalued it. And I would have to agree with that. We use the word happy. You can be happy about a lot of things. You can be happy about a lot of things. I think that there's more at stake here when Jesus says the word blessed. This term is an exclamation of the inner joy and peace that comes with being right with God. Happiness may indeed be a part of it, but it is a happiness that transcends what happens in the world around us. A happiness that comes to the soul from being favored by God. That is why it can, be call, that is why it can call for rejoicing under intense persecution. In some ways, the Lord's declaration of blessed is a pledge of divine reward for the inner spiritual character of the righteous. And one of the reasons that I like this quote from Ross is that I think it kind of gets at the dilemma about using the word happy and thinking happy is exactly what the word blessed means because there are times that we would all agree that we're not very happy and not very joyful, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not blessed. And so it's, to me, I I just want to clear up any confusion that there's times where we can be in a state where we're not very happy, we're not very joyful, but that doesn't mean that we may not be blessed. We can see Paul imprisoned. He had a lot of misfortune come his way for the purpose of preaching the gospel, but we would all agree probably that he was blessed. Stephen in the book of Acts was killed for preaching Jesus to his fellow Jews, and he was stoned to death. So I think that we can understand that this word happy, what it means, this word blessed, is it transcends the things that befall us in this life. Blessed means that you can still be blessed despite the things that you may be going through, the things that may come upon you in this physical world. So as we ask this question, what exactly does Jesus mean by hunger and thirst for righteousness? You know, those people, and today, we know what it's like to hunger and thirst. Right now, I'm a little bit of a dry mouth, and I have a little bit of a thirst to me. And all of you and all of us have experienced what it's like to be hungry, to be thirsty. But I think there's a big difference in knowing what it's like to feel thirsty and hungry versus going hungry and thirsty. You see, a lot of people on this earth, even today, they're not just hungry and thirsty, but they perpetually go hungry and thirsty because of poverty. My grandfather, on my mother's side, it's been several years now since he's passed away. I think he died. I think we just passed the nine-year mark of his death, but He was 86 years old when he died, and for years, he was an owner of a lumber yard. He was a businessman. And one of the characteristics that he was known for outside of, you know, obviously I'm biased, this is my grandfather, outside of being an honest and trustworthy businessman, was that he was a frugal individual financially. You know, you look at businesses today, and you you talk about, you know, the businesses that are willing to take big risks, and invest this money here, or do this, and that just wasn't my grandfather. And there was a reason for that. Because when he was a child, being born in around 1926 or so, he was a child of the Great Depression. He knew what it was like to go hungry, not just be hungry, but to go hungry. He knew what it was like to experience something that I'm very fortunate and very... uh, thankful to God that I have never had to experience and that is not knowing where my last mi- or my next meal may be and the people that Jesus was talking to in this time period they would have known exactly what my grandfather knew what it was like to go hungry because we see all the way back to the Old Testament when we look at the Old Testament prophets we see so many references to those who would be considered the poverty striction or, the poor, or, or those in the poor category In Jesus' day, it was no different. Jesus was talking to people who were oftentimes, many, not all, and we don't know the percentage or anything like that, but we just know there was a large portion of people that didn't have the luxuries that maybe we have in a modern setting, where you would have, you know, uh, I mean, I I don't want to get into what does poor today versus back in the day look like, but... We know that in those days, there wasn't as many resources like we have today in terms of, you know, you know uh, whether it be welfare, whether it be, I mean, there was things set up in God's system that we know. But so many of these people would have known what it was like to hunger and thirst. And just like Jesus said in John 12, verse 8, he says that the poor would always be with you. But they also, many of them, would known what it would be like to be hungry spiritually. The land of Palestine during this time was occupied by Rome. That's a foreign power, obviously, that Jews, the Jews in Jesus' day completely despised. And them, that is the Romans, being the occupiers of this land known as Palestine was a constant sign of there, those Jews living in Jesus' day, a sign of the oppression and the loss that took place beginning with the Babylonian captivity and the later conquerors such as the Romans. And so people that Jesus was talking to, many of them, we see evidence of this, were looking forward to a new day. They were looking forward to a time that had a deep desire for the fulfillment of what they had grown up reading about or hearing about in the synagogue, of the prophets, talking about a time period where Israel would be restored to an autonomous, united power, initiated and ushered in by none other than the Messiah himself. Just at Jesus' birth in Luke, the second chapter, we're not going to go there, but there's this story, and we know that Luke, the second chapter, talks about the things of you know, the newborn Jesus and how he was brought up to Jerusalem uh, so Joseph and Mary could do the necessary sacrificial requirements that's required of a firstborn male. And what is interesting about that story is that in the narrative there in Luke, if you just look at Luke, the second chapter, there's these two individuals, one's a man, an older man named Simeon, and one's an older lady by the name of Anna, and both were said to be righteous and looking forward to the restoration, the redemption, and deliverance of Israel. And God had granted them some insight knowing that this little newborn baby was the Savior of all the world. They were given insight. They were given the ability to recognize who Jesus was. And of course, they knew in their mind thinking about that desire, that hunger, that thirst for righteousness because they had seen what the world in which they lived in had came to be. They had seen living, unfortunately, among societies that weren't of God. You know, Israel originally was supposed to be able to be separate, set apart, not having to be next-door neighbors to pagan individuals that were partaking in ungodly practices, but in this new world that the first century Jews found themselves in, that wasn't a reality. They could separate themselves to some extent, but they had Romans around them, Roman soldiers, all, of course, practicing those things that were not of God. The question we have to ask ourselves today is at the end of the day, do we have this hunger and thirst like those individuals, Anna and Simeon? Do we long for the law of God flowing from Zion? Do we desire Jesus ruling and reigning on earth? Those images that we get, right? We, we, we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, those images of, of the lion and the lamb laying down together and instruments of violence being transformed into instruments of peace. You know, many of Jesus' hearers had tasted and seen what oppression was. They had experienced and witnessed, like I just mentioned, that ungodliness run amok. And here we are in 2023, finding ourselves in a similar way, in a similar manner. Living in this world, seeing oppression, seeing evil, seeing unrighteousness reign, in this world in a host of different forms, whether it be oppression from diseases, illnesses, both physical and mental illness, depression, addictions, poverty, and even corrupt governments at home, here, and abroad. Getting to kind of what Mark was talking about just a little while ago. We see evil terrorist regimes and organizations. We see terrorist attacks, unfortunately, carried out. And even evil from just what we would consider ordinary people sometimes. You know, the ordinary next-door neighbor that you know, and you've known them for years, and they seem like a great individual, and come to find out they've committed, you know, you know, a bunch of murders, or they have been behind some sort of horrible situation. We see this in our lives. We see this in the world today that we lived in. And so there is a connection today to what those individuals in Jesus' day experienced. People today hunger and thirst to be satisfied. They hunger and thirst to be filled. Sometimes these desires are good, and sometimes these desires are not so good. People desire the satisfaction in life. They want happiness in life safety and security, fulfillment in their marriages and their work life and their family life and their hobbies. But unfortunately, oftentimes people see or search rather for fulfillment in the wrong areas. They seek the, through power. I can imagine as if not list or watch the documentary that you talked to, Mark, the, the Hillsong documentary, but it's an example, right? I organizations, people who masquerade around as bearers of righteousness, when really they're just like whitewashed tombs that are full of deceit inside, as Jesus referred to. Whether it be through power that they're trying to fulfill these desires, these satis- the satisfaction of life or fame or through notoriety or through feeling important, through sometimes, unfortunately, drugs and alcohol, and just... Simply, maybe it's not something grand like that, like drugs and alcohol or power, but maybe it's just you unfortunately get satisfaction out of things, material things. And we know the problem with that is is that they're all temporary. they're all temporary. There's even unfortunately a branch of Christianity that promotes this idea of fulfillment through things that satisfactions through things and it's godly because God's the one who's given it to them. So people have desires for all different things and they try to fulfill them through different ways. But people also have a hunger and I firmly believe this, have a desire for religion. By nature, I think we are religious. I think we're beings that have a cognitive function, we have consciousness, we're self-aware, we have thinking and reasoning abilities, and I think it, it causes human beings, oftentimes by nature, to maybe ask some of those questions that have religious implications. Now, I know that when we look at a society, it seems like people are becoming less and less and less religious, and they are. But I think that there is something about the human brain that makes us ask these questions that have religious implications. Like, for example, people want to know where have we come from? How do we how do we get here? How did we get to this point in human history? And of course, the age old question people ask what is the meaning of life and what's the purpose in it? What's my purpose? Sometimes maybe through troubles. People sometimes consider the troubles that they're experiencing or see other people experience and seek answers to these hardships. And sometimes it leads them down what would be considered maybe a religious path. And it's not always the right path, but it makes them sometimes, it prompts them to maybe question things. Sometimes people acknowledge and this is where it gets back to this idea of us all being created in God's image. That we are created by a, a being that we have his nature, even if it's dimly. You know, God created us in his image and after his likeness. And so there is sometimes, I think naturally, people have this acknowledgement that there's, there's a void there's something missing, and it goes back to kind of what, unfortunately, people try to do. They, they try to fill that void with the things that we talked about, whether it be power, money, alcohol, substances, material things. Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, verse 11, God tells us that he has put eternity in our hearts. Now, there's some argument on what exactly that means. But for me, and I'm just speaking for myself, I think that there is something to be said that human beings by nature, they want more. They want more than this life has to offer. There's a desire for eternity, meaning there's a desire for meaning. There's a desire to have some sort of meaning to this life that transcends this physical here and now. And I think that might go back just to that idea that we are created in God's image after his likeness. Even though human, humans have fallen, that we have become to some extent depraved, his glory still shines through. And unfortunately, people oftentimes look in the wrong places and try to fill their hunger and quench their thirst in the wrong areas. And unfortunately, sometimes they try to get close to God but they do it by creating God after themselves. So let's go to Jeremiah, the second chapter. I just want to read a couple passages here. We all know about the story of Israel in the wilderness with the golden calf. I think I've alluded to this in multiple messages just this past year, about Moses being up on the mountain. And when he's up there on the mountain, the people, they, you know, they, they fashion this, this golden image, this golden calf, and say that this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And we know that, you know, we look at them and think about how crazy they are, how could they do that, but they were doing what I think a lot of us do in the, the here and now. But in Jeremiah, the second chapter, verses 11 and tw- and, and through 13, we read, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. I think it's indicative of our own society. Obviously, this has a historical setting. That, that we see that Jeremiah is talking about, but we know that we can probably look at this and see similarities that we deal with in the here and now. Some people seek righteousness in what, and I've referred to this before uh, in sermons, To they, they seek righteousness in the form of what I call formula theology. I think we all have probably know what formula theology is. It's just something that I've kind of come up with where people think that to get close to God, to be righteous, you have to do X, Y, and Z, right? You have to wear this covering. You have to pray in this direction. You have to do this dance or not do this dance. You have to chant these words. Say them in Hebrew. No, say them in Latin. No, say them in Arabic. I think you get where I'm talking about here. So many religions today, and unfortunately, even religions within Christianity, denominations, and some even within our own tradition. Think that there's some sort of formula for true righteousness that's outside of Jesus Christ. Man-made formulas that don't really have any backing to scripture, whether it be you have to say God's name in this specific way, which is totally, you know, fine if you want to use God's name and in in a way that you feel, you know, you're called to do. Uh, But, you know, that you have to have this specific dialect, or you have to, you know, use this language and this language only. People sometimes get into the habit of what I like to refer to as formula theology, that in order for righteousness, to fill that true righteousness, you have to use this special formula. That's outside of what the basic scriptures tell us, and that is through Christ. Stanley Grins and Roger Olson wrote a book years ago called Who Needs Theology? And in this book, they use this phrase, another thing that I've referenced before in a sermon. They've used this term, tabloid theology. Anybody ever heard of tabloid theology before? So tabloid theology, it's a term that they coined. You you think about when you go to the store, and it's been a long time, since I've been in an aisle where I've seen these, just because, you know, in this day and age, you, you order your groceries and you go and you, you park somewhere and people, you know, come out with a cart with all your groceries, you know, the, the, the modern, world, modern world we live in. But tabloid theology is, uh, comes from that idea when you're going down the aisle and what do you see all these magazines, right? And it's the tabloid magazines. And a lot of them are just nuts. They're just like huge... Crazy uh, titles to the magazines or, you know, headlines like so-and-so and so-and-so and so are, you know, in a, you know, filing for divorce. You know, some two famous celebrities of some sort. Uh, or, you know, you look and you see, you know, all of a sudden, you know, some magazine like Esquire or whatever they call, it, you know, that magazine, that, that paper that would say all kinds of crazy things. It would be like alien bones found in the desert of Arizona. I'm just coming up with things. But they, they're, they're shock value headlines. And so tabloid theology is like an excitement theology. And tabloid theology is, is it's all about, like, the shock value. Like, ah, so-and-so discovered the, the exact date that Jesus is coming back, and he has the formula for it. He has the timeline. Or, you know, uh, the Nephilim has been found, and here's the archaeologist that's, you know, can explain to you where they've been found and why they're the Nephilim so in other words there it, it's an excitement theology people have this need sometimes unfortunately to get excited to feel religious they unfortunately they look at righteousness as this like exciting endeavor like like they're Indiana Jones discovering these new things these new things these secrets that the, that are in the bible and of you know, you follow this person or you look at this person's timeline or, you know, you, you know, you know like kind of Mark was alluding to earlier, the mark of the beast. How many people have probably claimed that they know what the mark of the beast is and people, unfortunately, even if the person's sincerely believing that they've discovered it, people, human nature, some, you know, we are a thinking, you know, creature, but sometimes, unfortunately, you know, we don't show evidence of that because we fall for these things, but people will follow after that because they're inclined for that tabloid excite excitement theology. So there's all kinds of things that people use to be able to think that they're somehow righteous, that somehow this is the way, this is the way that you follow God, this is the way to righteousness. This is what thirsting and and and, and hungering after righteousness looks like. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, just what type of righteousness is Jesus talking about? I think we could answer this question for years because it's a deep one. But I think, I'm going to take a stab at it, I think it is a desire for personal and social righteousness. Righteousness. I think that it means a great desire to be living a life that is faithful to God and for that type of behavior to be exhibited in society. For justice to prevail, for godliness to prevail in this world. To be looking for those characteristics that are marked by the Messiah's coming and the inauguration of God's reign on earth through Christ to become a reality. A desire for that law as I mentioned earlier, flowing from Zion through the eradication of evil governments and empires on this earth. A righteousness, a desire, a longing that longs, as Jesus said in his model prayer, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we find. Just a little ways away, and Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 10, from the passage that we started with today. It's a hunger and thirst that makes a person disgusted with their own sinfulness. The sinfulness of society and a deep desire and hunger that is consistent with what Peter talks about. In Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's a desire that's not just something that's in us. When we have a desire for something, it prompts us to what? To action. I have two actions that I think that a true desire for righteousness prompts us to do. Number one, to be sanctified, to seek sanctification to eradicate those sins in our lives that we may be needing to work on. Let's go to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, a passage that we've read so many times, but oftentimes we read this as we get close to the Passover season. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 20, we see that Paul says, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and in holiness. And so all of us can look back to our former former selves, to our former lives, before Christ, and we we know what that means, that old man, that that, that time period where we were our own God, where we followed after our own desires, we were separated from God and his promises, that old man that was buried with Christ. And so true righteousness, I think, it's not, you know, we, we talk about desiring righteousness. It's not just, okay, I'm going to desire righteousness this year. I'm going to be set. It's a lifelong process, and we do this in the face of, of the times that we live in, of course the evils of today, in the face of trials that may befall us, and even in the face, and I think this is a key one, today in the face of ridicule. There's a lot of ridicule among people who truly follow after God. Secondly, a desire, it prompts us to action to be witnesses to God's righteousness. Not only a personal righteousness that you know we continue to try to transform ourselves through the Holy Spirit and through our walk with Christ individually and as, into, as personally, but it's a righteousness that desires to show God's righteousness to the world. And I think that all of us would agree that we have situations in our life, whether it be at work, whether it be in our community life, whether it be even in our church life, where we can help bring about righteousness, or at least be a witness. Of God's righteousness. And we have to ask the question. Of the people that we come into contact with. Most likely not all of them know about. The gospel. They may have heard of it. Of course. They may have even grew up in it. I can't tell you how many people I know. Grew up in church. And I'm not talking theology. I'm not talking about well they didn't have the right theology. I'm talking about. They didn't grow up in a church. And. This is common, unfortunately, that truly exhibited what the gospel looked like from a day-in, day-out standpoint on an individual. Whether it be because everyone they came into contact with, it was just judgment. It was just, don't do this, or you're going to go to hellfire for the rest of your life. It was fear-based. It was fear-based. Are the poor among us that we could help feed and clothe? That's a question we can ask, of course. But I think that we have to broaden what we mean and what we think about when we think about poor. Because even though someone's not physically poor, maybe not financially poor, maybe they're spiritually poor, we all have people maybe we have come into contact with that maybe are oppressed, whether it be by disease, as we talked about earlier, addictions, mental illness, that maybe, just maybe, We can show the righteousness of Christ in us simply just by sitting down and listening to them. Just by, you know, maybe sharing the gospel with them, but not necessarily just telling them what they need to do, but demonstrating a genuine love, a genuine care for the individuals. And maybe the person's not just in disease, the way we think of it, something that befalls them that they have no control over, but maybe it's, things that are sinful, like addiction, like we talked about, like uh, alcoholism or drugs. As Christians, we know that we are to abhor sin, but I think there's a difference in abhorring sin and, of course, abhorring sinners. I think all of us would, would agree that we're thankful that Christ did not abhor sinners, and he still doesn't abhor sinners. He abhors the sin, of course, but he doesn't abhor sinners themselves. Matthew, the ninth chapter, verse 10 through 13, Jesus says this. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, verse 13, but go and learn what this means, I desir- desire mercy and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Of course, we're not the physician, but we have to remember the physician lives within us. Now I think that there's many lessons that we can learn here. In no way, shape, or form is Jesus condoning sinful activity or sinful behavior. We all know that that's not true. But Jesus, he didn't shun them. He didn't participate in any sinful activity. We know that. We know that. What he did was, is he sat down and he listened to them and talked with them as individuals. See, Jesus... He wasn't like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that had convinced themselves that, well, those are sinners, and we're not sinners, so we're not going to associate with them. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those religious leaders, they had fooled themselves that somehow they themselves were not sinners, when they were. And the question we have to ask ourselves as we read this gospel message, these gospels, this life of Jesus... Who was more effective? And of course, we can talk about the, the you know the Holy Spirit. We can talk about God. Or, you know, you know, uh, put the Spirit upon Jesus for him to be effective. But which method was more effective and being impactful to just regular individuals in Jesus' day? I think it's, it's obvious. None of those tax collectors are sinners would ever dream of the religious leaders of their day ever coming to them and sitting down and talking with them. Never. But here you have Jesus, the Son of God, sitting down and befriending them, quite literally. Not their sin, but giving them a chance and seeing them with compassion, not in judgment when he had all the right to be in judgment as the Savior of this world. As I was thinking about this, I can't help but think of that song that our worship team has sung before. It's a song by Casting Crowns, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And maybe you've heard it before, or or you remember our worship team singing the song, but it has a lyric in there. Of course, it's not scripture, but I think it's scriptural. And it starts out, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, we have strayed so far away, We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth becomes so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around, but never looking up. I'm so double-minded, a plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. So no way is it promoting sin, as Jesus said, or even this song. But I think it's a reminder about the impact that we can have on this earth. And that when we look at our, who we follow, Jesus Christ, he didn't come <laughs> to heal the people who were healthy, but he was the physician that came to heal the sick, which we all are sick, were sick, in terms of you know, being full of sin, being worthy of death, alienated from God, all of us. Every single one of us. And we have to remember that just like those individuals that the the religious leaders looked at as sinners, we were as well. And all of us had the mercy of God bestowed upon us. So when we think of people in the world, instead of thinking in judgment first, think of compassion in terms of thanking God that he had mercy on us as an individual to save us, to bring us the truth, to die for us through his son, of course. And then also look at individuals possibly that you know, uh, that need just a helping hand. Not promoting their sin, not helping in their sin, not you know, being an enabler of their sin, but you would be surprised. And I'm just here to tell you... Uh, I don't have a, you know evidence statistically or anything like that. It's more anecdotal, as in my job as an assistant principal. I can tell you that it's easy to underestimate the impact that you can have on someone by just treating them like a, a, an equal individual. It truly is. You can have a, s- a significant impact. On somebody, And even if you think they're ignoring you, you never know what you say, how you say it, that time of being compassionate, what that can do. It might not do anything. That's not for us to decide. It's for us to be a vessel. And regardless if that garden's going to be, you know, fruitful, that's up to God in terms of making an impact on somebody. But don't neglect. And it's not, you know, uh, Thinking of ourselves as powerful or anything like that, don't underestimate what God may be trying to do through you to somebody or for someone. Can we be a witness to God and His kingdom on earth in the here and now? Of course we can. In fact, I think the Scriptures are clear. It's not just a question, or it's not just the answer is not just yes. It's an expectation. Just a little while after this, Matthew the fifth chapter, verses thirteen through sixteen we see another famous passage. Right after the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its flavor. How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Real basic scripture, difficult to carry out. It's not deep, complex theology, but it's probably one of the most difficult things. Living in this world in this sinful body where that old man still wants to come out to carry out. In conclusion, the good news is, is that just like all of the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us the ending. And that is, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not only are they blessed, but they shall be filled. Jesus gives us the encouragement that it's not just a hunger and and a desire that we're going to have that's going to be left unquenched or unfilled. But rather, he will carry out the fullness of that righteousness. Unfortunately, as we went over in this message, people look for that fulfillment in ways that's never going to quench that thirst or fill that hunger. Anything outside, anything outside of the bread of life and the living waters that Jesus is, is going to be a dead end in terms of fulfilling this quench and this hunger that we have for righteousness. There's two passages or string of passages I want to end today with. Both of them from the Old Testament prophets. One's Isaiah, the fifty fifth chapter, verses one through three, and I think it's I encourage you to go and look at the look at these passages and reflect upon them. Of course they have historical context, but I think that we can, you know, glean some encouragement from these words, some admonition from these words. One's in Isaiah the 55th chapter verses 1 through 3. Ho, everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me Here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And the next one is in Jeremiah, the 6th chapter, verse 16. I've pondered this passage for going on three or four years now, and I've been wanting to kind of give a message over it, but there's multiple translations that I like to look at to see exactly what God's doing. He's offering Judah in a time where they're Self-deceiving themselves of the incoming doom that's coming to Judah, they' somehow they feel safe. It's before the Babylonian captivity. but I like this phrase, this word that God says here in Jeremiah 6 chapter verse 16, "Thus says the Lord, "Stand in the ways and see." When you look at other translations, it says, "Stand at the crossroads." When you look at crossroads, it's like the fork in the road scenario, right? Which way are you going to go? Stand at the crossroads. Look at all the different paths around you. And we know we live in this world where there's all different paths. And all of them promise fulfillment. This is the way. No, this is the way. No, this is the way. But in verse, the second part, God says, and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. The ESV is my favorite translation because I don't know why, it's just a word, but it says, look for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Unfortunately, when you read the last phrase of this passage, God tells us what Judah would choose. He's offering them this They're self-deceiving themselves that God can't let this happen. The temple's here. He's not going to let us be taken over. The last phrase says, but they said we will not walk in it. The reason I brought this out is because I think that that's indicative of the society we live in. There's this offering of this path, this free path, Of course, it's not an easy path, but we know that there's this offering, and it's in the midst of all these different considerations, all these crossroads. And unfortunately, in this time and in this day and age, a good host of individuals on this planet refused to walk in it. But as we open up this new year, of course, we know this new year is the new year as it's reckoned by you know, the world that we live in. It's not God's new year, as uh, is obvious from Scripture. But we're coming upon God's new year just in a few months. And it's always good to think about, you know, as simple and basic as this message is or the concepts is, I think it's good in the the cycle of life that we live in. There's times where we, you know, we, we go through phases where maybe we're not, Seeking the righteousness of God like we would like to. I encourage all of us, and we think about those goals that you may be setting, whether or not improving your health, improving your diet, improving your finances. If, if there's another one that wasn't listed here, because we're all individuals, there's specific things that we go through, you might have one that's tailored to your individual situation. My encouragement to you is, is to seek more fervently. Make that as a big part of your resolution. To seek more and more fervently that righteousness of God.